What will it take to create communities that are truly safe from gun violence and mass shootings? That is something that we've all been thinking about, especially in recent weeks, and something that we in Chicago have a right to know. And when it comes to our children, they are also paying attention, learning to advocate for themselves and their right to safety. Dion McGill is the Community Outreach Manager for Strengthening Chicago's Youth. That's a mentorship program from Lurie Children's Hospital. Hi, Dion. Welcome to Reset. Uh, hi. Thank you for having me. Also joining us is Sarah Kanijnik. She's a member of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. And she's also running a new gun violence prevention initiative with the Lake County Prosecutor. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. And hello, Dion. Hello. Good, good to hear you. Dion, what have you been hearing lately from the teens that you work with? Like, how, how are they feeling just seeing all of this violence in the news right now? Man, um, you know, it's interesting. Recently, we just recently did a participatory action research project with a group of youth um, in a youth-led organization called Community United. And that research was specifically focused on um, mental health and trauma and boys and young men of color. Um, and we did a full research project, and it came down to recommendations, right, um, and some of the findings that were found. And, I mean, there's so much we can say, right, but we need to take better care of ourselves, of our youth, of our adolescents, you know, of our city and communities that have been neglected for a long, long time. And that all came through, you know, in the words and the thoughts and the conversations with those youth, wow. um, many of which who live on the west side of the city. You know, and, and it's one of those things, just hearing your, your head nod, right? Yeah. We say west side, immediate things come to mind, and that's not good. And so that's something we need to um, discuss more. Yeah, we need to address. And address, yes. Sarah, Moms Demand Action, that's a, an advocacy organization, but it's also a network of mothers. So what have you been hearing from parents about how they're talking about this with their kids? Well, I've, I've been involved with the gun violence prevention movement in many different capacities for five years. And what I'm struck by is there is a change um, since I started with Moms Demand Action seven years ago. There is a change. Um, what I'm hearing in reaction to Evaldi and the shootings in Irvine and Buffalo is a real understanding of how gun violence in communities, uh, you know, that are fully served or communities of privilege, uh, the kind of gun violence that happens in communities like Sandy Hook, um, you know, uh, that is intimately connected with the gun violence that's happening in communities that are underserved. Uh, and there's a, a much greater understanding of that uh, among the gu grassroots gun violence prevention movement than there was a few years ago. And I see that as great progress. And just, just in case there's anybody listening who's sort of puzzled by what I just said, uh, what a, a very key thing to understand about the gun violence crisis in our country is that we have to worry about firearms everywhere, no matter where we live, in our schools, in our shopping centers, in our uh, churches, and our places of worship specifically because we have ignored the gun violence that's happening every day in communities uh, that, that um, are on the, like the ones on the south and west side of Chicago. Uh, that when gun violence is high in those communities, the gun lobby is able to sell more firearms in communities of privilege because they base their marketing practices on fear and racism. Yeah. And that is why moms and suburban downstate areas, no matter no matter where they live. That is why moms and dads and grandparents have to worry when their children, you know, visit a neighbor's house 
whether or not that child is going to encounter um, an unsecured firearm. So that, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's just the most obvious connection, but connections go deep and we all have to understand that gun violence is everyone's problem. And if you live in a community of privilege, uh, you are, are dealing with this problem specifically yeah. because we have failed to address the root causes that Dion just described. That's the key there. It's everyone's problem. Uh, Dion, put your former teacher hat on. <laughs> what do you think they're feeling right now? Teachers everywhere. Oh, I have tons of friends with you. Um, a friend posted something that I, I thought I've been thinking about all day. She said, um, I sit and think, do I risk my life to save my room full of adopted children? Or do I do everything I can to save my own life so I can go back home to the child I actually birthed? And no teacher should have to come to that. What a decision. To that decision. Yeah. That's unacceptable. And let's be crystal clear. Okay, can we, like, just be honest. Please. Right, just, you know, um, my heart breaks when this happens, right? I, I've done the, the drills that teachers do and had the discussion with the students. Mr. McGill, would you really give your life for me? You know, and I'm a veteran. You know, I've. I've done that in, in different capacities through my life. Mm-hmm. However, right, I want to sit here and say, yes, my heart goes out to all the families and everyone impacted by this, right? But that sounds too close to saying thoughts and prayers. And if there's any certainty that goes beyond this moment, right, I am certain that thoughts and prayers do not prevent these events from happening, right? Yeah. Policy and change does. And those are the words that need to be on the tip of everyone's tongue when they're talking about Texas. As you bring up those those drills that they do at schools, I my heart broke again this morning mm-hmm. seeing, I think it was a tweet from uh, a teacher or a former teacher talking about what we don't hear with those drills. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the fact that when the student leaves the classroom to go, say, use the restroom, yep. if, the, if, if there is an active shooter in the building, right, e- even as they practice during the drills, the teacher cannot open the door for that student. They can bang. Yep. They can scream. Mm-hmm. They've got to stay out there. Yeah. And that's a decision that the teacher has to make. I mean, just just sitting and thinking with that, right? Like, the just the drills themselves, the emotional impact of that on children. You know, we hear that often from kids. They're scared. Children are scared to go to school, and parents are scared to send their children, right? Yeah. And then you're put in a situation where you have to make a decision that, like that. It, to, you're and you're you're a veteran, as you mentioned. We the discussion in and of itself is a band aid to me, right? Because we're we're five steps deep in a problem that shouldn't exist. This is not happening in a majority of countries that look like America, right? This is a you hear you've heard it a lot this week. This is a uniquely American problem. So if Very we're talking so. about how we're keeping kids safe in the classroom by locking doors and having buzzers and all this, we're five steps deep past where we should be in the problem, right? That's how I think about it. And so we need to take steps back. As a veteran, though, you, I imagined, you've come across the weapons that are being used for these mass shootings, right? Typically that that AR-15 style rifle. Should it be more difficult than it is for for the average person to get their hands on that? Absolutely. Um, In I spent nine months in Afghanistan, you know, very comfortable and very used to using a variety of weapons. Um, the military equivalent of that M4, right, It's that weapon exists and is used for a very particular reason. It's very effective at what it does. And so having that weapon in a city, urban setting, yeah. you know, to me it just doesn't make tons of sense. Um, and there are people way more intelligent than me, way more informed and way more educated who have had discussions about this. And um, we need to look at 
you know, what the statistics and the data uh, can tell us and go from there. Sarah, after uh, every mass shooting in this country, we tend to hear sort of the same opposing arguments for, for the things that need to change, right? What is it that you make of, of the opinion from pro-gun advocates that we should just arm the teachers? Or we all we need to do is install metal, metal detectors? Someone said in Uvalde there should have been a fence. What do you think of that, Sarah? I, I couldn't disagree more. Um, and the gun violence prevention movement in Illinois has repeatedly stood up to efforts um, uh, to pass a resolution uh, among the members of the Illinois State Board of Education um, every fall. The resolution comes before the board uh, that would allow the ISBE to support a legislation in Springfield that would allow school districts to arm their teachers. Uh, we have defeated it year after year after year, and we will keep coming back until for as long as we need to. Um, teachers, the vast majority of them don't want this. Um, I, I think it's ridiculous we already are basically putting in our teachers in situations where they have to experience PTSD because they have to make the kinds of decisions that Dion just agonizingly described a couple of moments ago about keeping a kid out of the room, right? Um, you know, this we are asking so much of our teachers, and, and to ask them to carry firearms is, is the most outrageous, ridiculous excuse. Uh, I have heard people from communities downstate say that, uh, you know, well, there are rural areas where law enforcement can't get to a school, you know, quick enough the way they can in more densely populated urban areas. Therefore, we need to arm teachers. We absolutely do not. We already have a solution for that. We have school resource officers uh, who should be, and and I hope in, in most cases, if not, I hope in all cases, are properly trained in how to use those firearms. Um, that, that's a, when I hear that argument that we should arm teachers, for example, from Texas governor, um, Abbott, which I think that was his, um, included in his very first statement after the massacre in Uvalde, mm-hmm. what that, what I hear when I hear a statement like that is we must create an opportunity for the gun lobby to sell even more guns. Because imagine the just uh, they see dollar signs when they when they hear um, uh, an initiative like that. Um, if we armed every teacher in America or even every teacher in Illinois, think of the, the way the profits would go up for those um, gun manufacturers yeah. and the people that enable them. As a former teacher, Dion, I'm wondering your thoughts here. Would that have made you feel safe if you had a gun in the classroom? Do you think kids and, and parents? would feel safe if you were an armed teacher back then? No, 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 no. Um, There's so, I wish we had the time to really discuss this. This is one of those things I I walk my friends through as a thought experiment. I'm thinking of my kids' teachers and how many things they've had to ask me for to provide, to supply the classroom with art supplies, books, pencils. We can't give them that, but we can give them guns. And training, right? (laughs) And I always think just what happens if, Let's say in this best case scenario, something goes wrong and a teacher shoots one of their students. We, we want to talk about mental health. Let's talk about that. You know? Yeah, let's talk about that. It, it, it makes no, to me, it makes no sense. It's an argument that I just go, what? Even as a veteran, someone who's used weapons, it just makes no sense to me. As a teacher who was in middle school classrooms and high school classrooms, I would never want that. I would be offended if my employer asked that of me um, and I... Yeah, I just, I couldn't do it. Sarah, weigh in on this mental health 
discussion because we hear that argument over this over a focus on regulating guns, right? This idea that we just we just need to get help for people struggling with mental health issues. Yeah, I would be happy to weigh in on that. Um, it it cannot be said often enough that the overwhelming majority of people who suffer from mental illness are victims of violent crime, not perpetrators. Now, that does not mean that we should not have uh, regulations and cultural norms in place that um, lead to limitations on the people who are dealing with mental illnesses' ability to access firearms. Um, that is, is certainly one of the, the key things that, that we can do, and we have done something very profound and effective for that in Illinois. Uh, in 2019, we passed the Firearm Restraining Order, uh, and it what it does, it's, it's sometimes it's a type of law that's sometimes referred to as an extreme risk protection order. And what it does is it allows a family or household member or law enforcement to petition the court to temporarily remove a person's firearms if they are experiencing uh, mental illness or there's some other um, clear reason why they should not have access to that firearm. Again, it's just temporary. And um, I couldn't be prouder that Illinois and the gun violence prevention grassroots movement worked together. Mm -hmm. Legislators in Illinois and the activists at the grassroots level worked together to get this bill passed. In fact, um, in the most recent session, money was appropriated by the Illinois General Assembly, and um, the, the law that included that funding was signed by Governor Pritzker, uh, giving um, support to a statewide educational awareness program about the firearm restraining order. Yeah. So we do have the tools that can keep us safe, but they don't really do any good unless people know that they're there. Um, so, yeah, Dion, I could go on. Yeah, but. <laughs> well, well, Dion, Sarah brings up a good point. Talk more about the role that community-level violence prevention programs play here. I'm sorry, can you rephrase the question? What, what role do community-level violence prevention programs play here? You can mix in your, your work with uh, Lurie Children's Hospital. Absolutely. Um, I mean, they play a huge part, right? Um, bringing community together, helping to bring resources to community. Um, at Sky, what we do is we try to bring just all stakeholders around violence prevention to the table to collaborate, whatever that means, whatever that looks like to come up with better ideas and then to push, right, those in power and those who make those decisions to implement those good ideas, which I feel, you know, I feel like I would be remiss if I said that's a huge problem yeah. right now, right? We're, we're, we know and I, Sarah would, I'm sure would agree with this, this is not a problem where we don't have solutions to solve. Whether we're talking, talking urban violence or violence in a mass shooting setting, what we have is a failure to implement, effectively implement or implement at all the solutions that we know are effective. So what do you have to say, Dion, to Republican lawmakers who resist making change and, and take money from the NRA? <laughs> um. You know, it's one of those things. I'm not even a basketball fan, right? But Steve Kerr kind of laid this out very effectively. That was very passionate. Yes, yeah. but he said 90%, and this is generally has been consistent for a number of years. 90% of Americans agree that we should have universal background checks, right? Um, when I worked at the Illinois Council Against Handgun Violence, um, my boss used to say that all the time. And she'd also say, you can't get 90% of Americans to agree which is better, apple or cherry pie. But if we can agree on that, why has it not happened? Mm -hmm. And I would ask any any lawmaker, right, regardless of partisanship, why has this not happened, right? The will of the people is being ignored, so why? 
And when you ask those questions, that's when, you know, we yeah. have to acknowledge the influence of the corporate gun lobby and all those things. But we just we have solutions. We just need to make them happen. I, I have personal experience very recently with, with that very issue. Uh, until just a couple of weeks ago when I took on the role as chair of the Lake County State's Attorney's Office um, Gun Violence Prevention Initiative, uh, immediately before that, I held the role as director of community engagement for Newtown Action Alliance. And I and, I and a nationwide um, network uh, sponsored by Newtown Action Alliance of activists uh, spent six months gathering all of the votes needed for a federal safe storage bill, H.R. 748 Ethan's Law. All of the votes in the U.S. House of Representatives, we have 215 votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally, you would need 218 to pass a bill out of the U.S. House, but there have been a couple of deaths. Uh, so we have all of the votes needed, including a promise to vote yes on this safe storage bill by a Republican representative from New Jersey, Chris Smith. Uh, all of the votes are there, and we spent the last several weeks trying to convince House leadership to call this bill for a vote. Yeah. They are hesitant to do that because in an election year, they don't want uh, Democrats who are facing uh, stiff uh, reelection campaigns to have to vote on a gun bill. Now, that was the case up until Buffalo, Irvine, and Uvalde. Yeah. It is my great hope that this will uh, give House leadership, U.S. House leadership, the courage uh, to to finally vote on that bill. It will pass the U.S. House of Representatives, and with the right level of urgency, uh, it can also pass the Senate. Uh, but to... in answer to your question, the reason so often policy change like this doesn't happen is because people in Congress are and at other levels of government are are afraid of losing their power. That is the long and the short of it. They don't want to give up their power to save kids uh, in any type of community. And until those people are voted out of office, Mm -hmm. this will never change. We'll have to leave it there for now. Sarah Kniesnik is uh, leading the new gun violence prevention initiative for the Lake County Prosecutor's Office. And Dion McGill is the community outreach manager for Strengthening Chicago's Youth. That's a mentorship program from Lurie Children's Hospital. Thank you both. Thank you. We talked about how some youth are feeling about gun violence and what violence prevention could look like. Now we want to talk about how youth can heal from harm already done and why they deserve restorative justice. But what is restorative justice and what does it look like in practice? Joining us now is Anna Durr. She's the restorative justice coordinator for Southside Together Organizing for Power, or STOP. That's a nonprofit based in Woodlawn. Hi, Anna. Welcome to Reset. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks Thanks for joining. We're also joined by Ling Young. Ling is STOP's youth organizer. Hi, Ling. Hello. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining us, Ling. You work with teens in uh, Woodlawn. So tell us, Ling, how have they reacted to the violence that's just all over the news? Um, My young people are really um, impacted, but also are motivated to do more when it comes to the violence. We understand that the young people, um, the babies that died in Texas, um, is heartfelt and brought uh, the world to its knees. But at this point, um, we need to understand that this happens all around the uh, the United States, and it really is frequent in the city of Chicago, where we have two-year-old babies that are dying from stray bullets and things of that nature. So my young people are really pushing to want to do more when it comes to uh, stopping violence. Stop runs a, a social justice club at Hyde Park Academy High School. How does that club work, Ling? 
The club is a uh, free-for-all when it comes to coming in. You could just walk into the room and you could be able to be a part of the club. Our club has a... Uh, uh, a structure when it comes to being able to be in space. Um, you obtain all the skills you need to be an organizer, but also an orator when it comes to advocating for things that you want. Um, my young people are really uh, passionate about wanting to push um, for campaigns that they are a constituency of, so we prioritize. Um, right now, our our headquarters is Hyde Park Academy, but we try to uh, move around all the woodlands surrounding schools, so mm-hmm. that's Fisk, uh, Carnegie, um, and Woodlawn Elementary School, Bret Hart, um, and a lot more, just so we could be able to uh, facilitate space when all around. Um, it's really easy going and really youth-led. I'm curious what the Social Justice Club members tell you about the mental health of their fellow students at Hyde Park Academy. Um, that they're struggling, like young people are really struggling due to the pandemic, but also that uh, the young people of this generation have been neglected um, and not really taken care of when it comes to paying attention to mental health. Um, everyone is so ready to get back to business when it comes to um, restarting the world back from the pandemic, but have not noticed that young people are suffering from the pandemic and not being able to um, openly uh, be emotionally open when it comes to their emotions. So they're trying to really push focus towards um, mental health and uh, self-care and mental wellness. Anna, for, for the person listening right now who is completely new to the idea, can you mm-hmm. tell us what restorative justice is? Restorative justice is a practice that we all use to to hold safe space. So practically all it is is to be able to hold a safe space, um, be able to convey feelings, but also in an organized way. So uh, there is a practice where you have to go in a certain order. You cannot skip any orders. You cannot um, go any other way. You have to go in the order of the circle where the way it's going. And the way it is to, you can have any circle for anything. You can have a circle to solve problems. You can have circles uh, to address things. You can have circles for accountability. But the restorative circle and restorative justice in itself is a practice where you, uh, we promote and pump safe space mm-hmm. and uh, pump being able to uh, vocalize your feelings and mental wellness. Yeah, and alternative to... Um... The traditional court system, it uh, it also encourages offenders to accept responsibility and, and yes. to seek to repair harm, right, and, mm-hmm. and for victims to advocate for themselves. Yeah, but that's only one, um, like, practice. Um, we're sort of justice is all around the board. So you can have an accountability circle, but you can also have a real fluent uh, feelings circle where you just talk about your feelings, where you be able to come clean and confess and things of that nature. So that is just one practice, but sub justice is many. So Anna, when there's been violence uh, among youth in Woodlawn, what's the first step that you take to, to help folks heal? The first step take, taking the heal is meet with all parties because um, you have to meet with all the parties in order to even get to the bottom of what has um, happen. First, we figure out what is the harm that has been done, and um, we ask them, like, both parties, whether they need to transform the harm that has been done, and we make sure that both parties want to meet together first before we, we come together and meet in circle, because circles are all voluntarily, like, we don't force anybody to be a part of the circle. Yeah. So, we meet with both parties first before we go into circle. And we just ask, um, like, exactly what you said, who who has been harmed, what are their needs, and 
us as a community, what can we do to move on from it? Ling, it it seems like uh, to stop, all these things are actually related, right? You know, affordable housing, access to mental health care, as well as reducing violence. So can you talk a bit more about those connections? Yes, those are all related because they're all human rights and social justice um, things that like black people um, ask for and black and brown people um, deserve. So we try to um, add an equal line when it comes to being fluent, when it comes to knowing that this is a human rights issue, but also more of a civil rights issue with knowing that um, that these all link um, coincidentally housing. Um, if your housing isn't right, it can affect your mental health. If your mental health isn't right, it can affect the actions that you take when it comes to violence and it comes to uh, the way you react to things um, because they're all uh, chain reaction, chain link um, when it comes to our communities. And uh, the, the uh, people who commit mass shootings, uh, we hear this all the time, that they're often lonely or uh, socially isolated. We're hearing it now with uh, the Uvalde shooting uh, in, in Texas. How can we reach out to kids who aren't as likely to show up at meetings or to put themselves out there? You said Anna or Lang. Anna. Okay, Anna. They, uh, so, like, far as, like, when it comes to students, like, um, normally what I've been doing is, like, I've just been showing up and, and coming and being a part of their space. Like, for example, like, in my school, I go in the lunchroom, and I just sit there and maybe just have candy and start, you know, offer candy, just have conversations with them. It's about, like, building relationships first and, like, breaking the ice that's allowed them to be able to want to talk to you. Yeah. Did you have anything to add to that, Ling? Yeah, of course. I think it's more of like we are the community components of school um, where uh, we as a community work with the school, but it's also a necessary take for that the schools, the social workers, um, the counselors, the things that black and brown students are deprived of um, needs to be in the forefront of actually making sure young people are safe in school and also out of school. Um, Young people spend most of their days, nine hours of the day, and only uh, forty-eight, and uh, only are outside of school for forty-eight hours of a, a regular school week. And so, uh, if young people are really going through stuff and bringing it back into the school, we are considered um, just secondary um, when it comes to making sure young people are safe. And uh, when it comes to, we're more of that. Hey, come talk to me about anything. Um, in fact, where school is supposed to be that first branch first. We're in the schools to make sure that um, young people and the counselors, teachers, social workers are being um, able to be held accountable, but also being able to have a safe space. Mm-hmm. So being in those spaces um, is just adding another cushion or supposed to add another cushion when it comes to uh, promoting safe space. And Ling, what's your relationship with the police officers who are assigned to schools? like Hyde Park Academy? I am one of the lead organizers that are um, pushing to get uh, cops out of CPS. We need more resources. We need more counselors. We need more books. Matter of fact, let's not say need. We demand more counselors. We demand more teachers. We demand more social workers. We demand more nurses. We demand more. Young people are just used to having a good education, not even a good education, just an education. We want our young black and brown people to have a great education. And if that has to come to the expense of losing police officers to be an alternative to um, 
policing and punishment, um, which is, is the is the route we're willing to take. The mayor, Lori Lightfoot, and um, the Board of Education is trying to cut down on a budget um, where young people are barely having anything to begin with. Um, Woodline is facing a, um, a feat of $1.6 million, um, and we just got money back from canceling out uh, the the uh, police officer, mm-hmm. understanding that police officers in some people's ways promote safety, but to young people, to black and brown young people, uh, especially in the city of Chicago, that is not the same message that we all receive. Just about 30 seconds here, Anna. Give us some advice here for a young person who wants to start a social justice club at their school. Some advice that I would give is really just just network, networking, being being um, positive, uh, follow, like following your passion. If you really have a passion for uh, really just opening a social justice club, find others like magic like you around and just really uh, be a voice. Yeah. Anna Durr is the restorative justice coordinator for Southside Together, organizing for power or stop. That's a nonprofit based in Woodlawn. And Ling Young is stops youth organizer.